0: We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to recap part of the chapter, but we're going to start our reading today in verse 13 through 23. And we've just started making our way through the book of Matthew as a church community. Um, We're going through it together on Sunday mornings, and then we are discussing it together during the week in our home groups. Um, And that is our announcement. We just want to encourage you, get involved in a home group. Um, It'll take your study in Matthew from a cerebral uh, intellectual exercise, albeit spiritual and and I'm sure moving, but it'll bring it into the community and into your practical life. So please get involved in one of our home groups. We've got several going on, um, but uh, we're, we're doing Matthew together all through the week. We're going to be in chapter 2. This is Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 23. Here we go. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and get out. Flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, because Herod is about to search for this child so that he can destroy him. So he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. This is verse 16, if you're following along. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are are now dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in another dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city of Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Lord God, please Unfold this scripture to us. Please, Jesus, Spirit of Jesus, show us yourself through this and how and what it means for us. Would you please unveil um, who we are in this world and in this time? Would you heal? Would you move? Would you speak? Would you soak this into our, our bones, into our body, into our mind, into our hearts? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last week we started looking at what we have come to know in the West as the Christmas story. So Christmas has come early. I've noticed Nathan's not here today. He was that bothered by this. He's like, I'll come back when Christmas is over. That's fine. What Matthew Matthew would have called, not the Christmas story, but the Genesis or the origin story of Jesus here on earth, the story of Jesus' birth. And he's going to continue in that vein this morning by telling us three very short stories that highlight some really important ideas surrounding Jesus' birth. And um, you may not be as familiar with these stories because, quite frankly, they didn't make they didn't make the final cut here in the West. These are the deleted scenes of the Christmas Christmas story, and there's a reason for that. These stories are a bit confusing for us. We don't really know what to do with them. Quite frankly, they're stories of tragedy. There's there's some serious um, downer stories. We're looking for something, you know, for Christmas, triumphant and hopeful and, you know, a hero king, an underdog, defeating evil. We're looking for warmth. You know, twinkling soft lighting, a fire log in the hearth, marshmallows floating around in our drinks. That's what, we're, <laughs> that's what we're looking for, but these stories are none of that. So they didn't make the cut. Evil in these stories seems to be prevailing almost immediately, and um, Jesus is forced off the scene by the end of it into obscurity. I don't know, personally, many movies or plays, or children's uh, performances around Christmas time that highlight these three stories. But to Matthew, these are extremely important stories surrounding the birth of Jesus. In fact, Matthew doesn't really seem to be apologizing for them at all, but wanting to highlight them, to say these three stories are something very much worth paying attention to when it comes to the particular power of Jesus to change the world and the way that he's going to do it. Um, they give really telling insights about who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and how he's come to do it. Now, maybe you notice each of these stories, all three of them follow the same pattern. He tells, he tells some disappointment, some tragic tale, um, and then follows it up with the word plero or plerosi, which is this is fulfilling something. This is fulfilling prophecy. And this word, plero, is the key of how Matthew was trained as a scribe of the kingdom to bring what we talked about in the first sermon, to take something new and pair it with something that's old. That's what he's doing here. With this word, Matthew is saying in these three stories that everything that happened in the life of Jesus, no matter how incidental, no matter how tragic, was a fulfillment of something, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, before I go on, I have to address prophecy for you because um, depending on your context, you might be thinking something of a misunderstanding when it comes to biblical prophecy. Typically, sometimes we in the West, again, depending on your context, when we hear the term prophecy, we think of someone like perhaps Nostradamus in the 16th century who had these um, kind of random abstract visions of things that would happen in the future, some apocalyptic scenes of things that would happen. And sometimes we look at the Old Testament like a grab bag of, of um, precise kinds of prophecies that we can reach in and pair perfectly with what Jesus is doing. And to be sure, sometimes Matthew does that, especially when we get to the passion narratives of the crucifixion narratives, Matthew will do that. But by and large, by and large, Matthew is doing something far more sophisticated and something far more, I think, more powerful than that. Biblical prophecy, rather than being standalone predictions about the future, Jesus and his apostles viewed redemptive history or the Old Testament as a shadow that found its substance in Jesus. In other words, can you guys see? maybe not see my shadow? But my shadow's right there. And it'd be like if you were trying to get to know Mike through what you can see on the ground right now. That's the Old Testament, right? Everything, and you can probably ascertain quite a bit from just looking at my shadow, but it would always be a fuzzy image. It would not be the substance of what is there. Jesus and and his apostles, they looked at the Old Testament this way, and, and basically the New Testament is saying Jesus is the embodiment the fulfillment the actual substance of what we've been looking at he's the alternate ending he's he's what it it all it all makes sense not just a few uh predictions here and there that we sift through and find one about the messiah here and there no matthew and jesus said it all applies to me Um, a great example of this is in luke chapter 24 where jesus has died he's risen from the dead but his disciples don't know that he's risen from the dead yet and there's a few of them that are on this road. They're traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And Jesus had just died. That's the front page news. They're his followers and they're extremely grieved and extremely sad. And Jesus appears in their midst, but they don't recognize him. And he says, what are you guys talking about? And they say, well, don't, haven't you, where, where have you been living? Under a rock? Don't you know what's been going on? He goes, what do you mean? And they said, don't you know about Jesus, this great prophet that we thought he was the Messiah, but then the Romans killed him, and now we don't, we we dedicated three years of our lives to him, and now we don't know what to do with ourselves, and it's this tragic thing. We thought surely he was the hope of Israel, but now we're not so sure, and all this. And Jesus says, oh, slow to see what the prophets have been telling you. And then it says, it says, and beginning with Moses, that's Genesis, that's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, through the prophets, he showed them how everything applied to himself. All things, everything applied to himself. Everything, all of it. Every dot, every slight mark, every story, every law, Everything, every, every prophecy, every poem, everything applied to him. And this is how the, his followers began to look back through the grid of Jesus onto the Old Testament and they saw him fulfilling all of those things. Now, if you don't understand it that way, the Bible is sure to confuse you and frustrate you. Okay? So I think I'll leave it there for now. I think the best way to do this is just to jump in and I'll show you what I mean. Okay, let's go through all of these three stories in turn and see what Matthew is up to and what um, his take on these events tells us about Jesus and why this is important for us. Let's start with the first story. This is verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "'Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt.'" and remain there until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod this was to fulfill there's our word play role this is to fulfill what the lord had spoken by the prophet out of egypt i called my son okay last week we left off seeing this conversation between joseph the husband of Mary, and this angel in a dream. Joseph had just found out that his betrothed wife, who was supposed to be a virgin, turned out pregnant. It was a shock. She says it's from the Holy Spirit. He doesn't believe her. So Joseph was essentially pursuing divorce with her when this angel appears in his dream and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid to do that. For what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She, she's going to bear you a son, and you will call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And then everything that the angel said happened. Can you uh, imagine what a relief? Can you imagine Joseph in the cave as Mary is giving birth? Can you imagine what he's thinking? Please let it be a boy. Please let it be a boy. <laughs> can you imagine if it was a girl? He would have been, felt so confused and looked at Mary like, oh, I was fooled by, you know, all of this. But it, it was a boy and everything that, uh, that was said happened. After that, this is the first part of chapter two that we didn't cover. After that, this caravan of, of wise men, you know the Christmas, this, is, this made the cut. Wise men, they come from the east, somewhere from, probably from uh, Babylon, they're called magi. They're basically Eastern astrologers and they're following this cosmological sign that they see and that they've ascertained that leads to the birth of a king. In in the ancient world, um, it was was accepted or thought that important kings were born um, when a new star appeared in the sky. So they're following and they somehow drilled it in. And this is probably a large group of people, I think, you know, in the Christmas plays, we usually see three wise men, right? Um, you'll notice nowhere in the text does it give us a precise number. There's three gifts that they give to Jesus, baby Jesus, that's kind of where we get the idea, but you know, you can give more than one gift. It's not the most precise way of looking at it. I think, I'm more inclined to think this is probably a lot of people, because it says Herod and all of Jerusalem were stirred up by these guys. I think, a, I, I'm inclined to think a lot of them came through you know, and this is what you don't do. You don't, go up to the, you don't go up to the king of the town and say, hey, where's the real king? You just, <laughs> not something you want to do. This is what they did. And, of course, there's this threat. All the, all, immediately, Matthew is setting up the battle of kingdoms here. If you notice, um, what verse is this? I might have gotten ahead of my notes. Uh, right at the beginning of this story, you'll notice that um, they come saying to Herod, and Matthew makes, say, makes clear to say Herod the king, and then in the next verse they say, where is the king of the Jews? So there's this already this, um, this fight going on. There's already a threat to this earthly kingdom because Jesus has come um, to take over. It's true, he's come to take over, he's come to give everyone a choice. It's not easy, you follow me, You know, following a kingdom, Following a king, there's no option there. It's not if you want to or follow me and. There's one true king. I'm him. Follow me, which means it's going to threaten those that are here. So the wise men find baby Jesus. They worship him. They give him his gifts and so forth. And then, being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they go back to their own country by another route. Herod had told them, hey, you know, sneakily or with bad motives, you go find him. And come tell me so I can worship him too. Of course, that wasn't what his intentions were. So, a, a, an angel tells them, Don't go back to that guy, um, go another way. And cut. That's it. It's perfect. Christmas. There it is. We got it. Baby Jesus is born. He's come to save us. Wise men come from other countries. You know, that's, there's diversity. We love that. It's so warm and cozy, it's hopeful. Um, So let's just stop there. But Matthew keeps going. And the reason these three stories didn't make the final cut for Christmas in the West is because this is where everything goes wrong. Quite quite frankly, this is where everything goes wrong. Here's where everything falls apart. An angel appears to Joseph again and says, get up and leave now. Because there's a price on that kid's head. They're going to try to destroy that child. Get up and go. Now, can you imagine this? First, we're so used to this story, we just skip it over. But stop. Imagine. You're 80 miles from home. You've gotten on a donkey. Pregnant. Very pregnant. Because the government that's in charge has commanded you to, to go to your hometown. So Joseph gets his pregnant wife, puts her on a donkey, travels 80 miles so they can give more money to the Roman government so they can keep oppressing them. There's no room for them in the inn. She gives birth in a cave. It's cold. It's wet. There's, it's not sterile. There's no midwives. There's no, there's no medical equipment. There's no lights. It's dark. It's cold. It's scary. You, you don't know anybody here. And then these... This caravan of strange people, foreigners come, saying that this is, we saw his star, he's born king of the Jews, and we're here to worship him. Just weird, can you imagine that? Just super weird. And then an angel shows up and says, don't get comfortable, get up, get back on that donkey and leave and go to Egypt. So they get up, they get back on the donkey, they go 300 miles into Egypt, through Israel, into the deserts of Egypt. They find themselves in a foreign place with different customs, different practices, different gods, different everything, and they try to raise their son in a foreign land. Not according to, I can't imagine Mary on the donkey going 300 miles is just going, oh, this is just so magical. With her latte, oh, my dreams are coming true. I just can't imagine her doing that. She's freaking out. She's freaking out. She's 14 years old. I mean, don't imagine Mary thinking this is, don't, don't imagine the twinkly lights. Now, let's be honest. If you or I were going through half of this, half of what they're going through, would we not be questioning God at this point? What is going on here? Is God really in control? It feels like there was some logistical mishap in the staff meeting in heaven here about the, the birth of the Messiah. He didn't plan on Herod. We're on our heels here. Born in a cave? But then Matthew says, this was all to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Okay, so here we go. Matthew is saying, actually, this is, to, this is all to fulfill the story. This is all part of the story. God was in this the entire time. Now the first step in following any New Testament writer when they quote something from the Old Testament, for those of you that want to learn to read your Bible on your own, and I hope you do. I hope you want to try this out for yourself. I know when we're new to the Bible, it's good and it's healthy to rely on someone that's a little bit further along than we are, but at some point... I hope you want to dip, dip your toe in this yourself. The first thing you want to do when a New Testament writer quotes something from the Old Testament is find where they're quoting from and go there and read it. And if you have um, most Bibles these days, they, you'll, when a quote is there, you'll see a little number by it, or a letter by it, excuse me, and you can find in the middle of your Bible in the concordance or at the bottom, you can correspond with the letter that's there and it'll tell you where this is from. And turn your page, go there, and find it. This is from Hosea chapter 11. Matthew takes us back about 700 years before Jesus to the prophet Hosea. And he quotes a poem from Hosea in chapter 11. So let's check it out. I think it's up there right now. Yep, this is chapter 11. It says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And here's our quote from Matthew. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, don't stop there. For context, keep going. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals. Those are foreign gods in the, in the land of Canaan. And burning offerings to idols. Yet, it was, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is another name for Israel. I took them up in their arms and they did not know that I was the one that healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I, and I bent down to them and I fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but to Assyria shall be their king. So the Assyrian empire is going to come, historically is going to come, and lead a military campaign against Israel, and it's gonna be a horrible thing. And why? Because they refuse to return to me. Verse six, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. And then everything changes. Look at this burst of emotion in chapter eight from Yahweh. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. This is God being very vulnerable. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So this is a poem in Hosea's day predicting that the Assyrians will come, launch this campaign, come in, conquer Israel, destroy them, and it's gonna be this horrible, horrible, disastrous thing. And notice that all of this is going to happen because Israel has abandoned their God But also notice that this is not so much a prediction, although it is, stay with me here, but it's a prediction that's framed within a larger story, the story of Israel, okay? And the story is told from God's perspective, and so the prophet takes us back even further. Has anybody ever seen the movie Inception? Okay, I'm gonna spoil it for you, or at least the basic premise. In the movie Inception, There is a world that is created that you can access by dreaming, by going into your dream. And there in this world, when you go into a dream world, you can interact with other conscious people, uh, consciousnesses, consciousnesses. You can do business deals. You can trade secrets. This becomes like the new spy type of a thing. You meet there in this world, and it's this digital world, but you access it through your mind, through dreaming. And while you're there, If someone wants to take you into a deeper level of this world, they can make you dream in your dream. They can kind of take you into this this layered consciousness by, so uh, you're dreaming on the outside. So basically, let's say Andrew and I want to meet together in a dream. We both go to sleep. We meet in the same world and then we go, okay, people are listening. Let's go to sleep again. And you go down even deeper and meet again and talk where it looks, where it seems safe. That's kind of what's going on here in our Bible in a way. Matthew says, hey, I want to take you back, and I want you to meet someone named Hosea. And so you go back through the corridors of time, and you meet Hosea who says, okay, I want to take you back even further. I want to take you back even further. I want to take you back to when the first time ever that God called Israel his son and that's when we were slaves in Egypt. So we go back even further. This is from Exodus chapter four, verse 22. Listen, I'll read it to you. It says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is God telling Moses what to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, here it is, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that they may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I'm gonna kill your firstborn son. Okay, so here we find ourselves launched into another story, a deeper story, an earlier story. This is a story of the Exodus where God's people are enslaved in the land of Egypt and God goes to Pharaoh and says, Israel's my son, I'm his dad. Like, and I've come to fight for him. Let him go so he can come and and fulfill the purpose that, that I've made for him. And of course, Pharaoh ultimately refuses until God sends this final plague of all plagues. It's just this horrible plague where he wipes out all of Egypt's firstborn sons. See, the idea is, you don't let my firstborn son go, I'm coming after your firstborn son. That's the idea. A father that will do anything to get his kid back. That's the story. So in the story, Israel, God's firstborn son, they're finally, Egypt goes, okay, after that one, just go. So they leave, they get out of Egypt, and then Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, "Never mind. I wanna go get, there goes our economy, let's go get our slaves back. So they send the army after after the Israelites. And you remember the incredible story, they're between, you know, the armies of Egypt are behind them, this the red sea is before them and god tells moses stretch out your staff and he parts the sea just parts the red sea and israel goes through and egypt says well let's follow them and they follow in there and israel gets out and god makes the sea crash back down onto egypt okay This is like the Old Testament damsel in distress story where God's the hero. He comes in and he rescues out of complete slavery in this dramatic, beautiful way to the point where he says, you are my treasure people. You're my my kids. You're my firstborn son. Now, after that dramatic salvation, does Yahweh have his people's hearts? No. 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 And that's what Hosea is saying. He's saying, he's recounting the story. You're my firstborn son, but the more I pursued you, the more distant you got. The further away, you didn't want anything to do with me. I went to all these lengths to grab you, to save you, to rescue, you, to show you that you're my treasure, and yet you don't want me. Your hearts grow cold. You start serving other gods. You start doing other things. The more they were saved, the worse they got. Now, look, Matthew is saying that Jesus' flight to Egypt is the fulfillment of this story. That's how he's, that's what he's saying. How, how? Well, he is God's, Jesus is God's true and greater son. And he's also, he's also on the run. He's fleeing from a Pharaoh-like tyrant named Herod. A king like Pharaoh who doesn't want to give up power, doesn't want to give up his hold on his kingdom. So in Jesus' story, Herod is, uh, Herod is being depicted as this Pharaoh-like tyrant, and Jesus is Israel. He's the son. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of the nation of Israel in the sense that he is both reliving and rewriting the, sto- the history of Israel. Israel. That's what Matthew is saying here. He's reliving the history and rewriting a better ending. When Israel was unfaithful in the wilderness, Jesus is going to be faithful. In fact, do you remember what happened? When when Israel passed through the Red Sea, the Apostle Paul tells us that that was like a baptism for them. And they went through the Red Sea into the wilderness. What's going to happen in the next chapter? Jesus is going to be baptized and he's gonna go into the wilderness. The children of Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is going to go in chapter four into the wilderness for 40 days. See what's, what's happening here? Matthew is saying Jesus has come to relive the old story and then to rewrite it, to write a better ending over the top of it, to redeem it in order to save it. The nation of Israel had failed Jesus will remain faithful, and then he will pay the price for their failure. And this is how how Matthew is looking at prophecy. So in the moment, here we go, in the moment, Mary and Joseph were probably wondering, does God even know what he's doing here? This is so out of control. This is chaos. If this is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, shouldn't he be a little bit more, you know, triumphant? Why would he put it in the hands of us? We're peasants. We're slaves. We're poor. Why? What's going on here? Matthew says God knows exactly what he's doing. He's using evil's own momentum against itself, like a judo master against itself, and rewriting the story of mankind through the person of Jesus. Pretty cool. Very cool, right? Okay, well, it gets better. Look at verse 16. This is the second story. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Okay, same pattern. Do you see it? Extremely tragic story. Extremely tragic story <clears throat> followed by our Matthew's favorite word to link them together, plero or plerosai. So after Herod realizes that he's been tricked by the wise men, much like, by the way, when the midwives in Exodus chapter one, the midwives fooled Pharaoh and tricked Pharaoh when he told them to kill the Hebrew babies. The midwife said, no, we're not gonna do that. They tricked him. And remember what Pharaoh did in response to that? He killed the babies by throwing them into the Nile. So here in Jesus's story, Herod when he, when he realizes he's been tricked by the wise men, he's going to come and kill all the boys in Bethlehem under two. And archaeologists like Katie's brother, uh, Titus, um, who have actually excavated around Bethlehem, tell us that the population of Bethlehem probably around that time was somewhere between one and 2,000 people. And according to birth rates and family size and, and all of those types of things, they estimate that around 25 to 50 children were massacred. Just a absolute tragedy. This is a very dark story. This is why you're not gonna see this in a Christmas play. It didn't make the cut, okay? This is a deleted scene. And of course we ask, and it's, I think you'd be weird if you did not ask this, why in the world would God allow something like this? That's a very natural, normal question. How in the world can God call himself good? How can this be part of his plan? How does this make sense? How does this pay off? How does this justify what's going on here? And honestly, if you're not bothered by that, I would say there's something not quite right there. But Matthew, again, he invites us to go back into Israel's history to remind us that God has not abandoned his post, that God has not done something reckless, but that he's actually in control. As horrible as this is, God, like I said, like that judo master, is using evil's momentum against itself. Let me read 17 to you. Then was fulfilled, Plerosi, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, okay, if you think that uh, if you think of prophecy as Matthew finding precise predictions to link to Jesus, this one will really mess you up. It'll really, really mess you up because. If that's how you think, the only conclusion here is that God somehow not just um, allowed this to happen, but even ordained it to happen. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Matthew is doing something else. Um, Primarily, Matthew sees Jesus as being the culmination of this long pattern of God's way of responding to human evil, of responding to the world. And using it somehow, even for his glory, and this is a great example of that. So Matthew takes us back. You know, you're in inception. You go to sleep, and he takes you back to the corridors of time, six hundred miles or six hundred years now before the time of Jesus. To and you in your travels, you come across a dark, depressed, grieving, heavy old prophet. He's Jeremiah. He's seen some things. Jeremiah has lived a life of tragedy, of hurt. The Babylonian Empire launched a military campaign against Judah. This is after the Assyrians. They came and they besieged Jerusalem for about a year. If you know anything about how ancient cities were besieged, ancient cities, they had all their agriculture and all their food source for the city around the city. So an army would come like a parasite, they would shut everybody inside and they would siphon the nutrients of that city for themselves. That's how they fed their army. They took over the crops and all those things and they let the city starve. And depending on how much surplus the city had held inside of it, this could take, it was a war of attrition. This could take a very, very long time. It took about a year for the Babylonians. Eventually, they broke through the city. They burned down Jerusalem. They burned down the temple of Yahweh, Solomon's temple. They leveled it to the ground, carried off the treasure inside, killed a whole ton of people, and hauled even more of them off to Babylon in exile. This was... 586 B.C., a, a horrible event in Israel's, in Israel's history, and they were out of the land. They were a nomadic people from this point until 1948 when, they were, when the United Nations voted them back in, okay? This is the, ground, the level, and Jeremiah had a front row seat to this. He saw this happening, and so if you ever have the I say this very sarcastically, the privilege of reading Jeremiah, it's a hard read, because it is this prophet grieving. It's a series of poems and lamentations, grieving about his mission, his part in this, what God had called him to do, and, wh- and prophesying to a people that would not listen to him, and therefore he could not save them, and it crashed all around him. So you meet this, Jeremiah is this heavy, heavy, heavy-hearted person. He's known as the weeping prophet. And then he wrote a lot of poems expressing this lamentation and what Matthew is quoting from is from one of them. This is Jeremiah 31, I think I've got it up there for you. It says, this is starting in verse 15. It says, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, Lamentation and bitter weeping Rachel is weeping for her children She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more thus says the Lord keep your voice from weeping He tells Jeremiah stop crying and your eyes from tears for there is a reward for your work declares the the Lord and they shall come back from the to the land from the enemy There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So you go back 600 years with Matthew, you meet Jeremiah, he's the serious, dark, heavy, depressed guy, he's troubled in his soul. And now, who are the children in verse 15, by the way? Israel, yeah, same as Hosea. Yeah, that's right. They are the sons of of the, the children of God, it's Israel. Um, And he sees the people of Israel, God's kid, as as they're being gathered up right outside of Jerusalem in a place called Ramah, and some are being slaughtered. This is what Jeremiah is seeing. Some are being slaughtered, some are being, uh, just all sorts of atrocities, and some are being chained and trotted off back to Babylon. This is what he's seeing. But Jeremiah says that there is still hope because God's children will come back back but then jeremiah says to you i want to take you back even further we do he does the inception thing again i want to take you back even further to get across the tragedy and the deep anguish and the weeping that i'm feeling in my soul i got to take you back to meet somebody else so like inception jeremiah when he mentions rachel this matriarch, this famous matriarch of Israel weeping, he's taking us back to Genesis 35, the story of Rachel. And you go back through the corridors of time until you meet this woman. Imagine, you're going back, and you you, you can hear her screaming as you're getting closer to her, and you meet a woman, you find out she's in labor. She's giving birth when you come on the scene. It's the matriarch, Rachel, and she's the mother of the nation of Israel, and she's in the process of, laboring and giving birth to the final of the 12 sons of Israel, the final tribe who will be Benjamin. And they're right outside of Bethlehem, by the way. Right outside of Bethlehem. But before she dies, she gives birth to a son. It's not, the labor's not going well. She's going to die. She's losing her life. And right before she does, she gives birth to a son. And in her anguish and grief, knowing that the birth of this baby will cost her her life. She feels it. She names him Benoni, which in Hebrew is son of grief or son of my anguish, son of my grief. And then she dies. You're watching this happen. (sighs) She dies. She's so distraught, so scared, so grieved, But her husband Jacob, you see this figure scoop up this child. And even though he's in anguish, he can't bear to have his son named this. So he changes his name, says, No, we're going to name him Benjamin, or Benjamin, Benjamin, which is son of my right hand. So Jeremiah is taking us back to this ancient scene of grief from, the, from one of the mothers of Israel. Rachel weeping over the loss of her own untimely death and he's using this as a metaphor to say that Rachel is weeping again so to speak over his situation over the Babylonians coming back to take her children from her body her line her descendants she they're gonna take him and they are no more they are out of the land they are gone basically he's saying it's like we would say something like oh man Rachel is turning over in her grave right now in other words What she stood for, her person, reaches through the corridors of time and Jeremiah is saying, you can hear her weeping again over this situation. And now Matthew is saying, and I hear it now. I hear it now. Rachel is weeping over the kids that Herod has killed in Bethlehem. Intense. So what's the point? What's Matthew trying to get across? Well, What do you ask yourself when you read a Christmas story like this? This is Christmas. This is Christmas in the raw. Here it is. When you read this, don't you naturally think, what is God doing in tragedies like this? When you look out at that world, don't you think that? What is God doing? Do you ever feel that you're on your heels? Or to put it in modern terms, that we're losing the culture wars, or however you want to say it? Where is God in all of this? And Matthew draws our attention through the words of Jeremiah who takes us back to ancient Bethlehem to this weeping matriarch Rachel to say that what is God doing? God is weeping. That's what he's doing. That's what God does in tragic events like this. Where is God in your moments of Chaos. Uh, when your plans don't go the way you thought they would go, when your dreams fall apart and they're not coming back, he's weeping. Like Jeremiah, God laments. Like Rachel, God grieves. It's close to me right now, as we have a dear friend who last week got in a, a collision with a semi truck and is fighting for her life right now in a hospital. This is apropos. It was ministered to my heart when I was studying this and preparing for this week. God is grieving over what humans, what over human sin has done to his good world. That's what he's doing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Scene three. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord. Okay, first of all, Herod died, Finally. Like a little uptake in this whole story. The jerk dies, you know. Our son has, every once in a while, prays that a certain dictator in Russia will die. He has prayed that before in his bed, before he's going to sleep. We're like, okay. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And so he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there too, and being warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city, really a village, a no name, or well, a name, but a, a obscure place called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets may, may be Plerosi, there's our word, may be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So again, imagine the hardship surrounding the birth of Jesus. They go 80 miles on a donkey to Bethlehem to be counted in the census. They give birth in a cave. They've got to flee. They, They get back on the donkey. Poor donkey. They go 300 miles into Egypt. Herod dies. Yay! They get back on the donkey, 300 miles back. They go to Bethlehem, but then they learn that his son is just as much of a megalomaniac as, 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 as the dad. And so in a dream, they get back on the donkey and they go 80 miles back to Mary's side of things. Bethlehem, Joseph's family, Joseph, Joseph was of the, of the line of David, Bethlehem's David's hometown. They also knew the Messiah was to be from the line of David. So they thought, well, I'm sure this is what I think they thought. We should probably be in Bethlehem. Verse 22 makes it clear they were intending to to relocate in Judea, but their plans fell through, and they had to flee up north to some obscure little town called Nazareth. And look, there's just, um, for one thing, the point of telling, why would Matthew want to tell us something so incidental as the town that Jesus settled in and grew up in? Well, for one thing, to tell you that this was not their first choice. This is a plan that did not go the way they thought it would go, okay? I'm sure this made sense to them that the Messiah was supposed to be from the line of David and then all of a sudden, they're why are we going up north? Why in the world are we going there? Um, No one would ever think the Messiah was to be raised in a place like Nazareth. No one would have ever thought that, nowhere. In fact, this was very disappointing. If, um, If you remember, in John, I think, I didn't take the time to look this up, but there's a story where these people come to Nathanael and they say, hey, we found the Messiah. Like, we found him. You should come and check him out. And Nathanael goes, oh yeah, where is he from? And they say, Nazareth. And he goes, Nazareth? What are you talking? That's not the Messiah. No one comes from Nazareth? And he disbelieves because of the town that he's from. So really interesting. But Matthew sees even something as incidental as this fits into the story of the Messiah and he uses that word again, play role. Look at verse 23. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled and he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, we're pros at this now, right? We know what to do. When a New Testament writer quotes something from the prophets of the Old Testament, we go back to that place, and we read it, and we learned the story. And you will search, and you will search, and you will search, and you will scrounge, and you will find nothing anywhere by any prophet that's any remotely kind of a prediction that Jesus would be in from the town, or that the Messiah would come from a town called Nazareth. It's nowhere in the Bible. And here's what's more frustrating. this word, you'll do you'll, you'll, you know, you'll get your computer out and do a little digging. And you'll find that Nazareth wasn't even around when the prophets were there. It's only about 150 years old by the time Jesus shows up. So that's it. Christianity is a farce. It's a joke. Let's pack it up. And we won't be meeting again ever. <laughs> no. Hold on. Actually. What Matthew's doing here, it will blow your mind. Um, notice that he doesn't say Jesus lived in Nazareth to fulfill any one particular prophet. He has been, he has been doing that. He's saying this is, this is to fulfill what the prophet Hosea says. And this one's to fulfill what the prophet Jeremiah says. But this time he says the prophets. This is to fulfill what all of them have said. In other words, Matthew is saying that there is something that all the prophets refer to, kind of a messianic theme that runs through all the prophets, if you will, that the prophets all picked up on. So the prophet Isaiah in chapter 11 developed this image of the Messiah coming like a sprout or like a a, a shoot or a branch, like out of a, a hewn down stump this tree that had been violently cut down. That is the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. So the idea is that, J- that David's house, his kingly line, when Babylon came, it mowed down David's tree, his family line. But out of that tree will come a, a branch. Yeah, you can see it. I put it up there. This is uh, Isaiah 11:1 through 2. There shall come forth a shoot, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him: the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, as time went on, other prophets like Jeremiah and Zechariah they loved this idea, they loved this image of the Messiah being like a branch out of this hewn-down stump. And so, you can read about. They kind of riffed on this. You can read, it. uh, I think it's Jeremiah 23, Zechariah chapter 6. And so this becomes a theme through all the prophets. The Messiah would be a branch from the decimated stump of the house of David. Now look look what Matthew's doing here. The name in Hebrew, the name in Hebrew for where Jesus grew up is the word Natseret. Can you say it? not said it. Okay, three of you got it. Well done. And in the Greek, it got translated to the word Nazareth or Nazareth. Okay? That's the Greek. And that's the town Jesus grew up in. Now, the name for branch or stick in the Hebrew is Natser. Nazer," which in the Greek would be spelled Nazer or calling Jesus a Nazarene. He's the branch man. That's what Matthew's saying. Do you see it? Matthew is linking the the name of the town that Jesus grew up in to the prophecy of Jesus being the stick or the branch from the line of David. Matthew is, is saying even the place he grew up points to something ancient. He's the branch that all the prophets wrote about. So there's a wordplay going on here in both Hebrew and Greek. And it just shows Matthew's brilliance. If you ever watch the show, The Chosen, we're watching that as a family right now. Matthew is depicted as kind of this autistic guy, kind of on the spectrum a little bit, kind of like crazy brilliant. It's from scholarship that think that Matthew is so mathematically brilliant that he can put all these things together he's a brilliant person he's a scribe that's been trained in the kingdom of heaven that can bring out treasures old and new and show them to us in some fascinating amazing ways nazareth actually means stick town so jesus is from the sticks that's the that's what that's what he's saying and there's a point to that there's a point to that Um, he's saying that jesus came from a place that is obscure that is nothing that is not prominent, that no one royal or good comes from, that, comes from that place. And I think Matthew is linking the insignificant place where Jesus grew up to an idea of a branch that Isaiah would develop in chapter, in Isaiah 53. I didn't write it down. I'm gonna read it to you. I'm just gonna look it up here. Listen to this. This is Isaiah 53. Oh, not chapter 1. 53, phone. There we go. Listen, this is about this juxtaposition of the Messiah being linked with nothingness, like Nazareth. Who has believed, this is Isaiah writing, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young branch, like a root out of dry ground, He had no form or majesty that we should look to him. There was no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men actually hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like sheep, before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet, it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Jesus is life. Let's just be honest. Jesus' life was a series of disappointments. Really? Uh, This is from Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey. He says, in all of these stories, Matthew is saying that everything about Jesus, including the town that he grew up in, epitomized who he was and what he came to do. This week at school, I teach at a school, I teach the Bible at a school, I got to sit in on a class discussing the providence of God and we were wrestling with where is God when, when there's human evil? Where is God? Where is God when what we planned falls apart or when someone we love gets hurt or even killed? Where is God when someone innocent is abused or assaulted or killed? Where is God when the government charges us more taxes and we're working two jobs just to make ends meet and just to get it, and finally when we got some extra, we have to spend it on something unforeseen? Where, You know, the grind of life. Where is God? Where is God when the unthinkable happens? Where is God when the doctor says you have cancer and it's stage four? When your children disown you and walk away from the faith? or when your parents betray you and hurt you. All stories represented from this room. When nothing goes right, where is God? The story of the Bible, from start to finish, is that God has given us a tremendous amount of freedom and power. And we have used that power to bring hell to this planet. How does God redeem something like that and fix it? Matthew says, by throwing himself in the middle of it. By throwing himself into the hell that we've made of this world. That's the story of Christmas, you guys. If we put the deleted scenes back in, that's the story. By being born a poor in a subjugated society, by running for his life from a murderous king, by growing up in a town with a bad reputation, Matthew is saying that God is saving us by throwing himself into the same kind of tragedies, terrors, and heartbreak that you and I experience in this life. Who is this God revealed in Jesus He's the God that redeems and saves, but not by making our dreams come true, but by taking on our nightmare upon himself. That's that's what Jesus is showing us here. Because Matthew is clear that Jesus' life is just as tragic as the rest of ours. Just as tragic. He came to his own, and his own received him not. We talk about injustice, and we talk about being victims. Oh, try Jesus on, from From the time he was born, he was subjugated. It was unfair. He was running. He was suffering. He was homeless. And at the end of it all, was he triumphant? Well, he was nailed to a cross. He died a slow death. He was the victim of injustice. No one come, and even his closest followers all ran from him. Only his mom stayed. And the only, the only hope we get from this story is at the very end when he's, he's so virtuous and so committed to God and so committed and dedicated to us that he conquers death and raises from the dead to show us that sin and death and evil, they may be happening to you, but they don't get the last word. That's the story of the Bible. And he's inviting you and me to follow him as he lives, as we watch him live in the same kind of life that we're living so that we can have the same quality of life that he has. That's what the gospel's about. That's what Matthew's trying to get at. Follow me as I live live on the same earth, the same planet, the same evil is gonna affect me and I'm gonna let it. I'm gonna let it swallow me up and consume me. Follow me and see how I do it so you can have the same quality of life that I enjoy and that I have. And that's the hope of Christmas. That's the hope of our lives. Not what we expect, but strength and beauty with it. What if, Matthew says, God is here suffering right alongside you? What if, you're at, where is God? He's weeping with you. He's holding you. He's feeling it with you. He hears you. This is the Jesus that we follow.